1: Just a quick note before we start this show, this show was recorded on Sunday morning just before we heard the tragic and devastating news about the helicopter crash that claimed nine lives, including Kobe Bryant. On Burn It All Down, we will certainly be talking about the complicated legacy of Bryant and holding space for the multitudes of emotions his untimely and tragic death raises. But for now, we would just like to recognize all of the lives lost far too soon in the crash, including pilot Arya Zobion, baseball coach John Altobelli, Carrie Altobelli, Sarah Chester, assistant coach Christina Mauser, and the lives of three young athletes that were tragically cut short, Alyssa Altobelli, Peyton Chester, and Gigi Bryant. We would also like to dedicate this show to Savitri Deshual, otherwise known lovingly as Ama to everyone. She passed away in Halifax, Nova Scotia on January 18th. She leaves behind a legacy of love and compassion As devotion, she will be so missed. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It might not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African-American Studies at Penn State, and I'm joined today by my esteemed co-host, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, Jess Luther, freelance reporter and author of Unsportland Like Conduct in Austin, Texas, and Shereen Ahmed, freelance reporter, journalist, all things awesome in Toronto, Canada. This week, we have not one, but two badass interviews. First, I'll be talking to Gwen Berry, US hammer thrower. And if you remember, she protested at the Pan Am Games this past August. I'm going to talk to her about the IOC decision of political protests at the upcoming Olympic Games and what got her motivated to protest in the first place. Also, Lindsay interviews Melissa Jacobs from the Football Girl and the Football Girl podcast. Of course, they're talking about the upcoming Super Bowl. We also are going to talk a little bit about tennis. And of course, we'll have our burn pile and our badass women of the week. But before we get into all of that... Let's talk about hockey for a little bit, (laughs) Shereen.
2: Love it. NHL All-Star weekend was amazing. I didn't watch it, and the only thing I know about it, because I care, is that there were women there. Women, you (laughs) ask, at the NHL (laughs) All-Star game? Yes, folks, because men are beginning to realize in the upper echelons, I see you, Gary Bettman, that you know that women's sports is where it's at. Enter the three on three tournament. Yes, we've had skills competitions before, and the cap hating person who shall not be named. I'm gonna name her just so you know who she is. Kendall coin showfield. She was there last year, impressed everyone with the speed, the skating and her speed. But this year they actually had a three-on-three. They had two 10-minute periods. It was pretty wild. I'm not gonna give it away. I'm gonna give it away. Canada won. Okay, y'all. Canada <laughs> I was like, won. Yeah, you are. No wonder you wanted <laughs> yes, this at guess. the top of the show. Okay. <laughs> I wanted wanted this at the top of the show. And for those of you that are interested, Sportsnet has the whole game, like the two ten minute periods, online. You can go watch it. It was pretty. It was pretty wonderful. Desarveant, who is the goaltender for Canada, was pretty on fire. Hillary Knight, who I love and I stand. Obviously, other than my co she's my favorite American. She scored. It was pretty great. And I think the women were really hyped up about it. There was this whole, like, red carpet thing. It's the NHL. They're always extras. But the women really rocked it, and they were talking about it. So that's the fun part. I love seeing women in those exclusively men's spaces. I just – that I enjoy. And it's very it's – it's, it's a nod. I hate that in some points we need a nod for men. But – it was very exciting. There was a little bit of drama, a little bit. So my American friends, you may or may not get CBC. Cassie Campbell, one of Canada's former players, double gold medalist, she is now a commentator. And she got on and was talking about the PWPHA and the NWHL. Anyway, all I'm going to wrap this up to say is Danny Rowland, who is the commissioner of the N-Dub, must be shitting her pants because – What Cassie said was basically why the PWPHA players are really, really, the Dream Gap Tour folks are really, really need a sustainable league and they can't do this. She went into some technicalities that were related to labor law that some people were online questioning about. And I thought to myself, if Canada and the U.S. go to war, it'll be about women's hockey.
3: But anyways, (laughs) this is my take. I mean, so I read that the officials were also women on the ice for the three on three, which I thought was cool. And I, I don't obviously know much about hockey in general, but I did think it was interesting that they chose to do US versus Canada. Like of all the different ways that they could have decided who to put on the ice that they chose that nationalistic. I mean, I get it because it's such a huge rivalry and it's probably what most people understand. But the fact that it didn't have anything to do with the NWHL in structure, I just found really interesting.
2: Well, they couldn't even divide up the players by, like, a conference because there's no Canadian league anymore. So the only thing that made yeah. sense to them was, mm. was national. I mean, you could could for the end of You couldn't do it for the non-existent league in Canada. Mm.
3: So I think that Yeah, that but just the fact sense. that they didn't do end-up. Like, it just, yeah. that they yeah. chose. I know that they're about to do a big thing in February, the U.S. versus Canada the rivalry, rivalry something, right? And so, team, like, I get yeah. it, but I yeah. also just thought that was fascinating.
2: I think this is a bit of a lead-up to it the rivalry series. I think this was just to sort of wet everyone's palate.
3: Mm-hmm. Well,
4: I thought it was pretty interesting how, if anything, if more, I think just as much as the nation was represented, University of Wisconsin was represented. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, both goaltenders were from University of Wisconsin, had been teammates. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. There are eight, mm-hmm. eight players from University of Wisconsin, you know, all together on both teams. So it... It was kind of fascinating to me. I learned a lot. I thought it was brilliant. It was really, really exciting and fast and cool. And I just really enjoyed it. I don't watch women's hockey enough. And I have this problem as I'm getting older, which is I will never, ever, ever know when that puck goes in or not. Like, I have to wait. (laughs) I have to wait for the slow-mo. Like, at the end, there's this amazing save where the U.S. could have tied it, like, in the last minute. Mm -hmm. And the goaltender, yeah. who I, again, struggle not to call a keeper, did this, like, um, <laughs> because for me, it looks like Sacker like on ice, right? It's like footy on ice. Like, there's offsides, there's keepers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And so she did this amazing save, but, like, it took me this, the, like, replay to even appreciate it. Like, it's just so hard to see. Anyway, whatever. It was brilliant.
1: Showing sure, you something on Wisconsin? Yeah, Wisconsin's, like, multi, like,
2: repetitive NCAA Div 1 champs. Mm. Like, they could Mm -hmm. be arguably one of the best. And and, and Boston people, don't get upset with me. Boston College, Boston, you don't get mad at me that I'm saying this, but they're arguably the best women's program in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that a lot, I mean, a lot of the hockey talent from here goes to Wisconsin Mm -hmm. and some of our national players play there. So I'm happy because, you know, I know Wisconsin not only because of the cheese, but because of the women's hockey. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's just wonderful. And It's basically Canada. (laughs)
4: <laughs> cheese hockey <laughs> yeah
2: yeah pretty much in some parts i guess you could say that the other thing is just quickly on the back of the net there's a little light post mm-hmm. so then th- th- like a puck goes in you can see yeah, that. I, yeah. And, and just promise me you'll never watch it with like a little star around the puck that americans tried to do about 10 years ago it was <laughs> i
4: remember that i was embarrassed for y'all like a halo yeah, around it
2: or whatever so bad It was embarrassing, all of it.
1: So I just wanted to (laughs) (laughs) shout out Friend of the Pod, Renee Hess and Black Girl Hockey Club. They're gearing up for a bunch of events in Black History Month. And the first one is this Friday. So if you're in the Pittsburgh area, there's a Black Girl Hockey Club meetup celebrating Black Hockey History Day. And it's the first of four events they're having about hockey in a Hockey for Everyone series. So again, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, Friday, January 31st, they're having a Black Girl Hockey meetup and celebrating Black Hockey History Night. So be on the lookout for that if we have flamethrowers in that area. All right, now off of the ice and onto the courts. Jess, can you talk to us about tennis?
3: Yeah, you know I can. So, I'll just say, we should say, right off top, we're recording on Sunday morning, and it is actually already very early Monday morning in Melbourne, Australia, where the Australian Open is in the middle of its tournament. So, we'll be discussing the tournament up through all of the Sunday matches and before any of the Monday ones start. We're mainly going to talk about the women, because I just find the men's side to be pretty boring. You still have Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. There'll be a good match tonight that will be over by the time everyone sees this, where Nadal's going up against Kyrgios, but... You kind of have the guys that maybe will break through this year, you know, uh, Zverev, Medvedev. Who's the other guy? Hold on. I have a note about him. I can't even remember the men anymore. Team.
1: This is already more than I thought you would ever say about men's tennis.
3: Yeah. (laughs) So that's happening. But the other side is so much more interesting, which is the women and... So I'll just say six of the top 10 women went out in the first week, which is a hell of a thing to happen. The people who are still in that I am paying attention to, Ash Barty, she's number one seated, Australian. We love her. She won the French Open last year. She just beat Alison Risk to move to the quarterfinals. Today's Australia Day, Monday in Australia. And of course, the country is still reeling. From all of the fires, they've had over 30 people killed there. So much land and property and animals have been damaged. I just, so it's such a big deal. And there's a big part of me that wants Ash to like do this thing and win this in Australia. But Halep is still in it. Everyone probably remembers her from Wimbledon last year when she beat Serena in that amazing match. Kiki Burtons, who is so fascinating, she was injured last year. She's still in it. Muguruza. Who won Wimbledon a few years back and then kind of fell away? Garbine, she's playing great tennis at this point. Beats Fidelina, number five. She's not even seated at this point. Angie Kerber is back. Is she seated? I think seventeenth. Mm-hmm. She won in 2016. She's won a bunch of Grand Slams and then she just kind of disappeared. And I like her a lot. My heart always goes out to Petra Kvitova. She's the one that had the break-in where the guy slashed her hand, and she had to have that emergency surgery. She's still out there battling, but let's get to the upsets. So Karolina Pliskova went out. She was second seed. Belinda Bencic, she went out. She was like destroyed in the third round, 6-0, 6-1. It's shocking. And then... There was, of course, Naomi Osaka, the defending champion. She went down to everyone's favorite, Coco Gauff. 15-year-old is in her Australian Open debut. She faced Venus in the first round. She had a great three-setter against Sirstia in the second round. She came through. She did lose last night. So Sunday night in Australia, she lost to Sophia Kennan, who's an up-and-coming American. She's ranked, or she's seated at least 14th. And then we had Serena, Lose. She was seeded eighth in this tournament and she went up against Wang Shang. And like Wang just played amazing tennis. I have thoughts about Serena and what's going to happen in the future, and we can get to that. And then we have to mention that Caroline Wozniacki as retired, the Australian Open was the end of her career. Mm. She got married. She wants to have a start a family. She has rheumatoid arthritis, but she went down to Anjabur, who is a Tunisian player. She's a first Arab woman, the first woman African player to make the round of 16. She beat Wong last night, Sunday. So she has now moved on to the quarterfinals. Thrilling stuff. And the final thing that I'll say is that until the New York Times wrote about it, I didn't even realize that Maria Sharapova was still playing tennis. <laughs> but apparently she went out in the first round of the Australian Open. So <laughs> I feel like, I mean, I do, I mean, you guys know, I and I have championed <laughs> Sharapova in the past, but I think probably <laughs> it's time. Maybe she doesn't want to yeah. hang up that racket. But, <laughs> you know, there's interesting talk around her about like the doping scandal around her. has possibly pushed her to continue to play. So, like, that that's not the thing that ended her career. Right. That she wants to have the upper trajectory and that it's just not happening. But anyway, she played too, lost in the first round. So I'm just going to. Those are all the things. She's, she's like, actually actually heard it. That logic is actually like
1: backfiring tremendously mm-hmm. because a people, like you said, don't remember she's playing, but B when she has these really early outs and early showings, even if it's because of age and not because of the lack of the doping, everybody's going to say, well, okay, like now not even have you not won since then, but you're like going out super early. So like it just, yeah, it's terrible. All it's around. not good.
3: It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all my like, quick thoughts on these women. I don't know where we want to go from there. We can talk about so much of this.
1: Yeah.
2: Shireen, do you want to... Well, there's just a couple of things. Like, I don't watch tennis the way, obviously, you both do. I didn't know there was men's tennis until Jess was talking about it because I don't, I, don't, I don't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just follow your tweets sometime in Lindsay's, but I... Anz Jabor is somebody who I'd had, had my eyes on. I found out about Anz Jabor from Lindsay. And just because her role in representing the Middle East and Arab women, she's a Tunisian tennis player and how far she's come and she's going forward. And she's literally like the only African player ever in tennis, women's tennis history to go forward at this level, which is a really big deal because representation obviously matters all the time. But when you see people, it's not as if tennis hasn't existed in those spaces. They just haven't had the opportunity to go forward in that way. So I am really like excited about that. Just did you want to add something too?
3: Yeah. I just wanted to say that when I was prepping for this, I went back to look because Lindsay interviewed Reem Aboulal, who is a tennis writer back in episode five of yeah. this podcast. Yeah. And the entire interview, this is about the French Open in 2017. And the entire interview is about Shabur. Like, That Reem, who cares about that part of the world and has been paying attention and forcing other tennis writers to pay attention, has been on this for years and Mm -hmm. and has been saying, like, Owens is going to show up. And so she actually had a big run in the 2017 French Open. That was kind of like her introduction to larger tennis fans. But if you want to, you can go listen to Reem talk about on in episode five of this podcast. Mm. So we were on it because Lindsay do ream. So it's just very exciting.
1: I love that. And I also love how much Jaber is advocating and really understands the importance of her visibility. After she made it advance to the quarterfinals last night, she said, quarterfinals for the first time, I'm trying to inspire many of the young generation back home in Tunisia or the Arabic world, especially in Africa. It's not impossible. I made it. I've been practicing in Tunisia from three through 17. I'm 100% a Tunisian product. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. I love that. And,
3: And it really matters because if you go to the draw for the Australian Open, one of the things they do at the top of the draw is they show you how much money the losing player gets in each round. And so, like, Coco went out in the round of 16, and she got a paycheck for $300,000. Jabir has moved on, right? And so, if she goes out in the quarterfinal, she will get a check for $525,000. That kind of money is the thing that sets these players up so yeah. that the next year, they can pay for the physios. They can pay for the, all the mm-hmm. people to Ooh. travel with them. They can afford mm-hmm. all the things that the, you know, like, breaking through and getting up in these tournaments is so important, financially in order to sustain your career on that level. Hmm. Can I just ask
4: something technical? Because I don't know shit, (laughs) basically. (laughs) But I'm totally fascinated by this. And I love the behind the scenes sort of like questions about that, about their salaries, because ultimately, it rests upon one individual, like such pressure, such enormous pressure. You know, I mostly spend my time on a sport where you can blame it on the other 10 people. like, (laughs) it's, it's like, I know tennis is in a sense a team sport because they're not doing it all alone, but it really is like an individual. So here's my question. So you've got this, you know, it looked like everybody, like the favorites were going forward into the very early rounds of this, right? Like everybody passed through that you expected and then boom, wow. But like, what's going on with like the game, like with... How does the game look to you with some of these veterans and some of these new people? Like, how does a women's game look to you, people who watch this more often versus like 10 years ago?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's big. Yeah. And I think we've talked about this too. We we covered it, I think, when Ash won last year, but it's like Jess said, it's, it's huge. It's vast. The parody is there. The actual game, like on the court, there's a lot more power. It used to be right that you would have a few people who had the power to like really win it on their serve alone. And you have all these different styles of the game being played, but it just feels like the level is so high that it's still shocking when there's upsets. But also this is like, not the first Grand Slam that we've seen such like I feel like the last time we were talking about this, it was the same thing. The storyline that we were talking about, I can't even remember where was it was it Wimbledon Jess or
3: Friendship we Maybe were like yeah. I mean like, it's every year now with every the women. Every
1: year we see massive upsets. We see that people can win it on their first serve. People can, you know, win it because they are making people run and they have the agility, like, the power in the game. Like, it's a fascinating watch. And when Jess is saying that about it being a more interesting product than the men's thing, she's not just being, like, boo-boo men. Like, it's literally a more compelling,
3: entertaining tournament. And you know what? I honestly think that one of the things that benefits the women's game is that they play three sets. Because when you play five sets, like the men do – you can like kind of fuck around right. for a set set and a half and still like come back and win the thing and it's long and you're in it forever and that's fun when it's like Nadal versus Federer at Wimbledon 11 years ago and it's like the most amazing tennis that you've ever seen for five and a half hours or whatever right. but a lot of times it's just boring <laughs> Like it's just like <laughs> okay tennis forever whereas the women like the second you step on that court you have to be mm. ready exactly. you only get three sets mm. you go down a set and you are in mm. trouble and I just think the stakes are so much higher in a way that I enjoy. And so the fact that there are more upsets or feels like, I think there are more upsets. I mean, the men are the same men at the top. I think in part, I I believe is that they play less sets, that they just have to... Once you're down, it's hard to get out of that.
1: I love that point, Jess. And I think we can even transition to talk about Coco in that vein. You know, Coco is 15. <laughs> She's phenomenal. Amazing. Her future is so bright. Can I just say that? She's like 15 and serving 119 on some serves. And like... She's still growing. <laughs> She's just a phenomenal player to watch. But her match with Kennan last night, I and mean, we have to say the Australian Open is, like, I find one of the hardest ones to watch because yes, the early so games hard. are at, like, 11 p.m. <laughs> so. Yeah. But the thing with Coco is that first set was so competitive. And mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. she got down early, but you could see even within the set, fought back. And then, when it looked like she was gonna go kind of win out the set, Kenan broke her, and then it went to a tie break and so you have all this adrenaline and momentum that Coco had following the first set, and you get into the second set, and her forehand just kind of abandoned her and The problem with <laughs> that is that as it went on and as it was very clear that okay, we're gonna have to push this to a third set. You could see her struggle in real time to try to get back in rhythm, to try to get back mm-hmm. on her game. And Kennan was responding to that by remaining aggressive. And like just said, there's not this space where you can kind of like back off. You have to remain at this really aggressive style of play because... You know, at that point, Kenan's playing for her life. If Kenan loses, that's it. It's done. And then you get into the third set and it's like a completely different game. I mean, Coco just like couldn't get back into it. But I think that that's such an insightful point, Jess, because the stakes become so high at every – like starting in the second set, like it's win or go home. And so it's – I mean, you
3: hear it all the time with the men where they will literally just – you hear that down to say like, I think they're just losing this set to get to the next one. Mm. And you're like, there's not room in the women's game to right. just lose a set to get to the next one. Like, and I, I think that makes it more compelling and better. <laughs> yep. So Coco beat Naomi.
1: I Largely Naomi in that second set just looked, it was not great tennis. And, you know, her consistency has been a thing that we've talked about. So I look forward to, you know, watching her going forward. But I guess it's time to talk about Serena. <laughs> Jess, you can talk first. <laughs>
3: Okay, I'm gonna say it. I don't think she's gonna make 24. Mm. I think that's probably <laughs> what's happening here. And you know, I, I like love her. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was saying to Erin as we were watching her play Wong that I was sad that yeah. I like I felt like she was gonna lose much earlier. The fact that it went to three sets was unbelievable to me. She wasn't playing well in the way that she doesn't play well. She wasn't moving her feet. She wasn't getting around the ball. She wasn't the better player on the court and she just in case anyone doesn't know this in the US Open she beat Wong in 44 minutes it was the shortest match of the 2019 US Open was Serena versus wow. Wong and i have I a just question think maybe about yeah.
2: that i'm i'm sorry i'm just listening because i love hearing you talk about tennis but I have a, like, that that she beat Wong in 44. Is it, like, the environment? Is there health? Because how can it be yeah. so different? Like, that's just, is it an environmental factor? Like, what's what's happening? Is it, you know, like, I just, I don't I think it. It. it's credit to Wong. Yeah. Okay.
3: Okay. I think that she did a bunch of training in the months in between. Okay. In order to meet this. And, yeah, I'm sure it's the day that they play. Serena looked really good in New York. She did not look good. In in Melbourne, which, you know, is a bummer because she just won Auckland. And yeah, I mean, there's so many things, right? Like as Brenda was saying, it's a one on one. And so some days people just don't show up. And I think Serena for so many decades, which is a crazy thing to say out loud, for so many decades, she just always showed up. (laughs) and at a level that is unreal. But she has said it so many times, right, that when she's on the court, the person across from her is going to play the best tennis of their life exactly, in order to stay with her, right? So she's always up against someone's very best tennis every time she plays. And now that she's older and she has a family and all these other things, I think maybe we're just going to see more and more of this, right, where the other person's best tennis Tennis is better than hers. And I just don't think it matters. Like, she is the best tennis player of all time. One of the best athletes of all time. Whether or not she hits 24. Lindsay had a great power plays about how... Margaret Court is the one she's chasing. And back when Margaret Court was winning Grand Slams, like, no one went to Australia. Mm -hmm. Only Australians showed up for the Australian Open. Like, it wasn't the kind of competitive international field that Serena played in for decades. She is by far the best player who has ever played this sport. So she doesn't need the 24. I agree again with Lindsay that, like, we are all lucky that we get to watch Serena go for 24. Yeah, But I'm kind of, I think maybe... If she wins 24, I will be as happy as everyone else, but I will actually at this point be surprised.
1: Yeah. See, I have a little bit of hope left for 24, but I think it's because of this like weird thing she's doing now. She's not playing a lot of tennis, right? So she's mm-hmm. she's just not actually competing in a lot of the kind of smaller tournaments. And what it does is it means that when we see her, she either is going to be... Playing like we're accustomed to seeing her play, moving her feet in rhythm. She's warmed up. Her and, serve wasn't
3: there. And she didn't even have her serve the other day. And oh. if she doesn't
1: have it, if she's not moving her feet and she doesn't have her serve, and she does that thing where she gets frustrated, and then it makes me frustrated to watch. <laughs> like it's just that that whole tournament, that whole it's just not it's not going to happen there. But you know, winning Auckland, I think was. Something that gives me that kind of slimmer of hope is the fact that I still believe that there's a chance that she gets into a Grand Slam and just gets hot. And I say that because within the last year, we've seen her being the, like, it feels fleeting because it's kind of like, this is how I'll say it. There's a moment last night in Coco's in the game where she had four set points. And when you have four set points, so you have four chances to win, it feels like, oh, this is inevitable because you have so many opportunities. And then the first two set points went by and she didn't get those. So then you start feeling the pressure a little bit more. And then it's like, maybe this isn't inevitable. This is a lot closer now. The breathing room is a lot tighter. And then all of a sudden, she was down to her last set point and the pressure was all the way turned up. And it felt like, You've lost all these set points. It went from feeling inevitable to feeling almost impossible, but she ended up winning that last set point and winning that set and i and I think about that is how I think about twenty four is that she Serena has been in a position to get twenty four multiple times and it went from feeling inevitable like oh, she's going to get it and then with each loss it made it turned the pressure up and Now I feel like we're in the kind of end game where we're on that last set point, so to speak and hmm. I still think that there is a chance that that happens, but it definitely, I feel her back against the wall. I feel the pressure's turned up. I feel that the loss of all of those previous opportunities is definitely a weight. I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping that it's not, I would love to see her get it. And then, you know, ride off into the sunshine and have another baby if she wants. And, you know, live her best life. And do more dance routines with Naomi. (laughs) I mean, with Coco. Coco. Yeah, go find that. This is the best. But, yeah. Jess, do you want to close this out?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to end this. Lindsay's not here, obviously. And she loves the tennis like we do. In her newsletter on Friday for Power Plays, she wrote about Serena and her legacy. And I just wanted to read that because I thought it was perfect. And she wrote, quote, But Serena's legacy isn't 23 or 24 or 25. Her legacy is her longevity and her fight. Her legacy is how women's tennis today is deeper than it's ever been. Her legacy is in powerful serves and laser-like forehands you see across the tour and in the ways players have developed their defense and returns and variety to counter them. Her legacy is her advocacy and her celebrity and the many young black women who are major contenders these days, from Osaka to Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys to Coco Gauff.
1: Next up, I chat with Gwen Berry about the IOC's cowardice <laughs> and looking forward to Tokyo 2020. It is now my pleasure to chat with Gwen Berry, U.S. hammer thrower. American gold medalist. She made headlines last year when she raised her fist on the medal stand of that same competition. And I wanted to catch up with her as she is preparing for Tokyo 2020 to talk about the new IOC ruling. So Gwen, welcome to Burn It All Down.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So yeah, you know I had to hit you up and get your take on the IOC's quote-unquote clarifying that there can be no political protests at the games and, you know, having a kind of vague paintbrush that they're painting political action with. And I wanted to see what were your initial actions when you saw this news?
0: Um, My re- immediate reaction was that I had to laugh because I feel like in certain ways that me and Race and Bolden were targeted because some of the things that they described were things that we did at Pan American Games. So it was pretty funny that they said those things. Yeah, those things are historical for, you know, protests in past Olympic Games. And to the day, like, the people, the athletes who did those types of protests are being praised. So it was kind of ironic and it's kind of hypocritical that they could put those guidelines down and they they
1: praised the same thing. And part of this, too, of course, is how they're defining political. They're being very vague. You know, it's interesting that you said you were felt targeted. And I was wondering what you make of how they're understanding political actions, what they're even trying to call political. And I think the vagueness is like another form of control. Do you see it in a similar way?
0: Yes, Absolutely. Because that's, that's how it was before. Before, the rules were extremely vague. Like, it just said no protesting, you know, pertaining to race, religion, and politics. Now they're saying, okay, none of that. And you can't do these actions as well. So it gives them a lot of variety to be able to punish anything that they really don't like or anything that messes up their sponsorship or the event itself that they feel that they can punish.
1: Certainly. And I mean, even the punishments are vague, which I think also serves to keep athletes in check because you don't know, you know, are they taking medals? Are they kicking people out of the village? Like, what are they doing? It's intentionally, you know, concealed. Right.
0: In the past, they've kicked, they've taken medals, they've kicked athletes out of the village, they've kicked athletes out of the sport. So you just never know. And that's just their form of control, like you're saying.
1: Now, since a lot of this is intimidation, obviously, a lot of people will ask you, how does this affect what you plan to do in Tokyo? But I think something that gets overlooked is that the rosters for the Olympics are not set yet. So I was wondering if you could speak to where you are in that process and the kind of precarity of being asked these questions when you're not even secured on the Olympic roster.
0: Well, the first thing I say to people who ask me is that I'm really not focused on it because I have to focus on making the team. So what making the team includes for track and field athletes is the last week of June. I think it's around June 24th through the 28th, whatever. I think it's the last week. I'm sure it is. And we have what is called Olympic trials. So to to truly avoid politics in track and field, the top three people go to the Olympic Games. You have to make top three in each event top three finishers, and then that punches your ticket to the Olympic game. It's a really hard process, it's really stressful, but usually the best go the best make the game
1: mhm, so this is really ongoing, and it puts you guys in a tough position in terms of athletic protests, but one of the things I think is really powerful in you know the, your protests that you did before and the actions of those who have come before you is when athletes kind of seize this platform to say, you know, I have this platform and I will not remain silent in the wake of some issues that I'm seeing. And I want to raise my voice to that. So I was wondering if you could just take a minute to revisit your protest at Pan Am in August and talk to us a little bit about what led you to raise your fist when you got on that gold medal stand.
0: Definitely what made me throw up my fist at Pan Am's. Well, it was 50-50. It was 50, my personal experience and my personal life, things that I've been through, things that I've overcome. And the track meet definitely reminded me of that because it was a really, really hard track meet. It was after a very stressful selection to make the world championship team. That meet was stressful, and then I had to fly right to Peru. So, you know, with the weather and with the conditions, my body took a hit. So, you know, I feel like I rose from that. I grew from that, and then I overcame a hard situation with the whole year that I had been dealing with. So that was one. The other reason why I raised my fist was to definitely bring awareness about the things that are not being talked about and the things that are being pushed under the rug in America. That's, you know, racial discrimination. A lot of black men, unarmed black men, are being killed by the police. Unarmed black women are being killed by the police. People are dying in prisons children don't have opportunities that they would have if they had wealth, the racial wealth gap, all these things that I see literally every day. I drive to University of Houston and I live in the suburbs and it's a good area. It's really nice. And then you drive 35 minutes down the road and people live in shacks. It's ridiculous. And it breaks my heart every day. I see it every day. Mm. It's insane. Mm.
1: So we talk about how, you know, like the last five, six years of athletic activism has really been influenced by Trayvon Martin's death and other death of unarmed Black men and women and, and victims of police brutality. Now, you're from St. Louis. Well, you're actually from Ferguson. And so you've been impacted directly by the death of Mike Brown in particular.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the same streets Mike Brown grew up in. We went to the same schools, to the same parties, the same basketball games. That literally hit home for me to where the week of his murder, I flew home to walk the streets and to talk to the kids that go to the school where the murder took place, basically, like right around the block.
1: Man, wow. So I mean, like, I think that's a great illustration of one way where, you know, there's a lot of voices that were raised in the wake of, of these killings and in Ferguson, but athletes have a particular platform in that to be able to give a particular visibility and kind of echo like bullhorn to some of these issues. And so to revisit the IOC's ruling in the wake of like understanding your motivations, it really, you can see the cost of it, the weight of silencing.
0: Exactly, I agree. I feel like the IOC, like I said on um, MSNBC, they're trying to protect their investments. The IOC, because they don't pay any of the athletes to perform at the Olympic Games, is basically like we're actors, right? They get paid all the big bucks, all the sponsors come to them, they want to throw money into the Olympic event. So in order for them to protect their business, they have to say, all right, guys, this is the script stick to the script and then go home to your regular lives and go home to all the drama and to all the horrible things that you've experienced on the way here. They want you it's almost like they want you to forget where you came from or the things that you brought with you or hold with you while competing. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, and I think you're striking the nail on the head when you're talking about sponsorship. I mean, we've talked a lot about on the show about Olympics being big mega events. We've had interviews with no Olympics and protesters on the ground. We've talked about the destruction left in places like Rio and Pyeongchang when this you know mega sporting event rolls into town with all its bells and whistles and the destruction it leaves, especially as it's all about is kind of bottom dollar. Right. Yeah. So the sponsorship and revenue conversation is so important. I mean. They're having record number of like kind of sponsorships and, and dollars already coming in. Um, yeah. They already have sponsorships like topping, you know, $3 billion. So we're talking big money. And it certainly seems easier to, you know, sell a depoliticized neutral kind of palatable Olympic games to your sponsors. Exactly. All right. So what should we be on the lookout for, for the U.S. track and field for trials? So we're looking at like March,
0: April. So for most events, It'll be around March, April. Like gymnastics, I think. Baseball probably have already selected theirs. It it just varies between sports. But for track and field, definitely look out for USATF Track and Field Olympic Trials. It'll be held in Eugene, Oregon. And it'll be around the dates of June 24th through the 28th.
1: All right. Well, we'll be watching, of course, and cheering you on here at Burn It All Down. Last question What can lay people do? So, for our flamethrowers, our listeners, or anybody else who sees what the IOC is doing, who's not happy about it, who wants to support the athletes, what are some actions? You know, they can raise their individual voices to the IOC, but what are some actions that make you feel supported as an athlete? What would you say to somebody who says, I want to support you? I see you raising your voice. Like, what can I do to support that?
0: I feel like just keep letting athletes know that they're not alone and that they are being heard and that they are being appreciated. Just giving them time to, you know, just even if they write a, a great post on Instagram or Twitter, just, you know, two seconds out your day to just say, I agree. I stand with you. You know, small things like that go a long way.
1: Yeah, well, we will do that. We see you. We commend you. We stand with you. Thank you for coming on Burn It All Down. Thanks for having me. Next, Lindsay chats with Melissa Jacobs about the Super Bowl. Hello,
5: flamethrowers. Lindsay here. And joining me is the very special Melissa Jacobs. She is the founding and managing editor of The Football Girl. She also contributes to The Guardian. She's on the BBC all the time. And it's just generally a genius when it comes to everything football. Melissa, welcome to Burn It
6: All Down. Wow. Thank you, Lindsay. That was quite- <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to the genius billing, but I appreciate it nonetheless. No pressure. No pressure.
5: <laughs> so it's Super Bowl time. So when this episode comes out, the Super Bowl will be this upcoming Sunday. Obviously, okay. everyone's talking about it. We've got the San Francisco 49ers versus the Kansas City Chiefs. A very... It, it just feels like there's so many new storylines and new faces, especially if you're someone who is a more casual observer of the NFL. So right. let's get everybody ready for it. Let's start with the 49ers, okay? So they... Got here by, you know, they had a really good regular season in the NFC Championship game. They were up 27 to nothing, I believe, at halftime over the Green Bay Packers. Yeah. Ran for 285 yards. <laughs> Just ridiculous. Right. But they've got this quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. Tell us about him.
6: <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people don't know about him because he didn't really do anything in the last game because he didn't have to. He threw for <laughs> 77 yards, I believe, and was completely fine with it. That's the thing about. Garoppolo and this team is he's not looking to pad stats. I mean, they were running the football in that game and, and they were, I mean, if you're getting six yards of carry on every down, then there's no need to throw it. So in a lot of ways, Garoppolo is a, a bit of a mystery He hasn't really started that many games because he got hurt last year. He was Tom Brady's backup for a few years in in New England before San Francisco traded him for a second round pick, which still seems crazy that the Patriots did that, especially now that their (laughs) future is not exactly solidified at the quarterback position. Yeah, he is, uh, you know, he he probably holds on to the ball a little bit too long if there's any criticisms, but he's come up in some big games this year. He's kind of, you know, there's still questions around him because he just doesn't really have the track record of a Russell Wilson, for example, where he's just pulled out, you know, rabbits out of his hat and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the just sheer, like, you know, mind boggling tools that Patrick Mahomes has, but he's, you know, He's smart. He's very cool. There's a lot of like mental aspects that are similar to how Joe Montana was back in the day. And, and you know, the teammates love him and have all the faith in the world in him.
5: And it's very important that I mention. I mean,
6: he he just he looks like <laughs> out of a movie. <laughs> like the, he like is, doing, are we going to discuss his looks? I don't. I don't know. I, don't, I don't have, have to bring does. it up because it's so ridiculous. It is. Like it is. his
5: looks are absolutely ridiculous. Like he he has this smile that you're like, oh, you're you're from a catalog. <laughs> like yeah. you're not real, right. and it, it does add to the to the whole persona There you can't ignore it because he's that good looking that it can't be ignored.
6: Yeah, it's ridiculous. In fact, I, I covered the NFC championship and I'm at his locker and he's holding the Hollis trophy that goes to the NFC champion and all of his family members around, you know, and they're the, like the most like perfect looking humans. The entire family is like the most perfect and <laughs> crafted jawlines. Like how, who are you people? What planet are you from? But yeah. which in, in Garoppolo's case, I mean, it, it feels like heading into the Super Bowl if San Francisco wins it as they've won many games this year it probably will be based on you know a pass rush or a very strong layered confusing running game but if Garoppolo is the star is the MVP I mean the marketing opportunities for that guy through the roof he's one of those people that when he smiles you can like see the gleam. do you know what i mean like of the teeth
5: i just i hear like the ding you know anyways we're gonna move on i think and correct me if i'm wrong that raheem mozart is one of the best stories on not only in the 49ers but in football itself he's one of these running backs that just gashes (laughs) through the defense and he has Talk about not a straightforward journey. Talk about a story of perseverance.
6: Tell us a little bit about Raheem. Well, first of all, he's a surfer, which is the most interesting aspect. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He, That's so amazing. When he scores a touchdown, if he scores a touchdown in the Super Bowl and you see him surfing as a celebration, he's the, the, an avid surfer. But he's just one of these guys, undrafted, cut by six teams. You know, this happens a lot particularly, I would say, at the running back position. But it's really rare that a running back emerges to this degree. You know, sometimes you'll see a guy like that and he'll he'll be filling in for an injured player and, you know, have a few touches. If you're playing fantasy football, you're like, okay, great. This guy, you know, is my plug-in guy for three weeks. But Raheem Mostert has just really fit in perfectly into kyle shanahan's running game even you know he's been there it's kind of an injury replacement he's a special teams guy by the way he's the best special teams guy that the 49ers have so he's still you know performing there and he's just yeah he's he's gashing and he's you know he he's just he's a he's a good blocker and Richard Sherman actually said after the game he's like he's just so perfect for the system they they run a lot of you know misdirections and he's like if he's on another team maybe he is you know just an average joe type but because of his body type and and his skill set and how it meshes with Kyle Shanahan he's like he's the best running back in football at the moment that was Richard Sherman's words not mine but you, you can
5: I mean it's hard to disagree and I love that he has doesn't he have the Names of like every single team yeah. who cut him and the date he was cut locker. was it in his locker
6: that he yeah, had in that? His locker yeah and yeah. over after before and after every game I love but that not, All in, right. not in a one of those you know like super I mean he's not a chippy guy he's a very again he's a surfer he's just very and he has a lot of that mentality he's very chill I think he does the yoga also he's just you know so it's just just one of those let me appreciate where I'm at know where I came from yes I want to prove a, a lot of people wrong though or I'm enjoying the journey of proving all of these. Yeah, no, yeah,
5: just in like a personal motivation yeah. way. And yeah. I just really appreciate that. Because look, we all need, it's just a message to all of us. Like keep going. You never know when you're going to find right. your perfect fit, like the system that exactly. fits you perfectly in whatever you're doing. So you've got those two kind of key figures on offense. We know they're going to try and run it a lot. On defense, they have some big stars as well. Nick Bosa, Richard Sherman, as you just mentioned. And they're going to need all the defense they can get because on the other side, we've got Kansas City. And I don't know where else to lead the conversation other than Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes. People are not familiar with Patrick Mahomes' story. What do they need to know about this 24-year-old?
6: He's just a, a multi I mean, just a ridiculously talented, you know, was a multi sport athlete. And it is just I think one thing that's really cool, and I don't know how much this will come up in the Super Bowl broadcast is is he sat behind Alex Smith. And he he happened again, this is a situational thing, like we just mentioned about Raheem Mostert. A lot of, you know, backup guys, you know, it, it wound up working out for Jimmy Garoppolo, but it wasn't as you know, he didn't have that kind of mentorship from Tom Brady. Patrick Mahomes had that in the first year from from Alex Smith, who's, you know, fine, kind of like, you know, an average quarterback, but because he kind of got that tutelage and was in the right situation with Andy Reid, who catered his offense to Patrick Mahomes very unique set of gifts, it's allowed him to thrive. It's allowed him to just, you know, create plays out of nothing. No look passes. I mean, he's 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 basically a human highlight show. And to have him in the Super Bowl is of the four teams that were remaining heading into the championship week, that was the one that, you know, objectively was the best for the NFL, both from a rating standpoint and you know, a bringing in the casual fan because he's just so thrilling to watch.
5: He's so thrilling. And, you know, Kansas City isn't a team that always gets the biggest spotlight. But he is, I mean, everything I've read about, I you know, I read from these usually fairly measured football writers who are just, you know, this guy is probably the best, like he could be the best quarterback ever. I mean, that's what people people are saying, like kind of reinvent the quarterback position. And it just feels like we haven't had a talent to this level. Of course, there was a lot of talk about it with Lamar Jackson's regular season. But Patrick Mahomes has been doing this for a few years now.
6: Right. And, and you know, last year he had the 50 touchdown passes. And it was the most, right. you know, ridiculous, like this, let's put the guy in the Hall of Fame right now. I mean, I'll, I'll say it to you, Lindsay. I mean, I would be stunned if he's not actually a Hall of Famer, but we don't often say that after one year. And then, the, you know, the regular season this year, he had a kneecap shoe. His numbers were down a little bit. He still did, you know, remarkable things throughout the season. But there was actually talk from some people that he was regressing. <laughs> but now there's, they've played, you know, two playoff games now and both he's just looked kind of otherworldly again so it's going to be really great for football that that he's on that stage but not great for the 49ers no and what he gives you is that ability to
5: you're never out of the game with him like the Chiefs can score points so quickly they were down what was the score they were down 24
6: by in the nothing to the Texans
5: 24 to nothing to the Texans in the first half of that playoff <laughs> game and came back I mean, it was, it came back like it was nothing. Came back and ended up rolling over them because that's just, he doesn't panic. He knows how quickly they can get it done. And I am really excited. I think that matchup between the Chiefs offense and the 49ers defense is just going to be the key to the game. Before I get your overall pick, though tell us a little bit about these two coaches. They're very different. <laughs> so you've got <laughs> Kyle Shanahan for the 49ers. And then you've got Andy Reid on the Chiefs. Andy Reid, who, of course, we have all made fun of at times for his coaching decisions in big moments, for his time management skills, for his great wow. regular seasons and horrible decisions often in the postseason. How has Andy Reed gotten back to the stage? And is this gonna be the Andy Reed, you know, hero story that we all want kind of would like to see at this point?
6: <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely setting up for that. So Andy Reid has last went to the Super Bowl 15 years ago with the Eagles. He lost that game. In the meantime so the Donovan McNabb
5: years with the no. Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. yeah the wild. Eagles.
6: In the meantime, he's lost. Big games, uh, you know, big playoff games, been blown out, lost in the last second, lost on poor decisions, a lot of very disappointing losses. Yet throughout, he's always been, you know, the one thing he has in common with Kyle Shanahan is that he's been a very smart offensive mind he's still mm-hmm. he's the one calling the plays and they're you know obviously having a guy like Patrick Mahomes and then the the weaponry that Mahomes has makes things a little bit simpler but you know he's one of the most beloved coaches of all time and he you know I would say his, he's a little less mistake prone in the last couple of years I, coincidentally that's when Patrick Mahomes has been the starter but one thing and, and Jenny Vrentis of SI did a great profile last year of just you know you get so many coaches in the NFL that are like you fit my system you fit my system and I know I just said that about Shanahan but that's kind of a different situation because he also is altering but with Andy Reid it's like I have this guy Patrick Mahomes I I, what let's just see I mean Patrick Mahomes doesn't call his own plays but he completely was flexible it wasn't based on you know this is how what my system's been for 20 years and I just gotta plug in guys and I'll just get the the best guy available for that his malleability is is really gotten a lot of credit around the league and more teams are sort of trying to to emulate that because it's worked so well in Kansas City if he said I have to fit someone in my system Patrick Mahomes wouldn't be his guy Alex Smith yeah there. I love that and he's got this great offensive coordinator who I know you've written and talked
5: about in your podcast Eric I'm always yeah. saying his, his last name right can you you say it for me. There's so BM. Bien- right. BM, who is just so he's been overlooked for head coaching position after head coaching position. He's one of the few black offensive coordinators in the league. And it's just mind boggling because he's the coordinator of this <laughs> fantastic offense. No, like, it's one of the best offenses ever.
6: Yeah, it was pretty stunning that Kevin Stefanski of the Vikings, who had a pretty horrible performance against San Francisco, gets hired by Cleveland like hours after they lose and meanwhile Robert Sala, the defensive coordinator who's of Lebanese descent, who just railroaded him and then you have Eric Bieniemy on the other side, you know, helping to craft an offense that scores 51 points and they're they're not getting anything. And you, you know, it is very mind-boggling. It's obviously a very disturbing situation. What has happened with the Rooney rule that were, I think it started in 2003 and we still have the three head, black head coaches. We're back to square one, basically. I don't know, you know, you get people, not anyone credible more, you know, when you try to come up with rationale he? interview well like I you know it's it's hard to con- it's hard to come up with any viable there's no viable reason it's, reason. it's systemic yeah. racism it's, it's just like that's just like yeah. what it is I mean you, yeah it's yeah. implicit bias and that the hiring process is so quick with these teams right they're all in a cool like quest like let's get our coach in so we can get all the position coaches in they're not spending time really getting to know the coaches really vetting them really understanding like maybe if someone doesn't look like me or sound like me or have the same background like let me get to know him and understand his like deep philosophy and then think about how that meshes with my players like we don't get to that point so eric bienemy just to, and eric bienemy's team is doing well so that's you know that's not the implicit bias part of it but that's another disadvantage cuz people want to fill their staff so quickly
5: yeah so on the other side we have Kyle Shanahan son of former NFL coach mike shanahan 40 years old so really young i know that <laughs> the Thought process on who is young anymore has been a little (laughs) bit skewed lately, (laughs) but 40 is really young for an NFL head coach. Yeah. Why? He hasn't been with the 49ers for that long, hired in 2017.
6: Very quickly, what's been the key to his success? I mean, he's he's a football genius. I'm not a football genius. He is literally a football genius. Very quickly, I'll tell you, I, I interview every year. I do a, a yearly thing for my podcast with Joe Staley, the offensive tackle, the only guy who oh, there, played in the last Super Bowl. And he told me the year Shanahan started, he's like, I was going to retire because, the, you know, they were losing. He was miserable. And he was actually part of a committee that went to Jed York, the owner, and said, this guy, you got to get this guy, whatever it takes like you got to get him here, and even in that first those first two years of losing under Shanahan, Joe Staley was just rejuvenated I and mean, he's like, you know he's saying to me, you don't understand how detailed this guy is, how intricate his game plan is like how what a like what a football nerd he is, so there's you know and 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 the other thing about Shanahan is because he's only forty, if you want to say only years, so old or whatever your perspective is, he relates to the players. Jim Mm -hmm. Harbaugh was an amazing coach, but he was a rah-rah guy. And, you know, he, I think players were a little scared of him. Kyle dresses like them. He listens to the same music they listen to. So, I mean, he's still the boss and he's still the guy. I mean, he, he comes in with inherent credibility because he is such a smart football mind. And now we're seeing the fruits of his mind, you know, play out on the field. But the players just really, really, really like him as a person as well. And that really matters. (laughs) Like, that's a big part of it, right? At the end of the day, it's
5: it's a relationship about teams. And of course, it makes me, you know, all this talk about systems and stuff, it just makes me, you know, wish that. You know, the last guy to lead the 49ers to the Super Bowl, Colin Kaepernick, you know, had been able to find that guy for him, you know. Yeah. How much talent is wasted for so many reasons because people aren't in the right systems and people don't find the people that believe in them. Or right. Well, Colin
6: Kaepernick would be playing in the NFL if we're, you know, the NFL. Yes different overall makeup right now we know we both yes
5: colin kaepernick should be in the nfl anyways but let's finish with one of my favorite stories going into the super bowl katie sowers the offensive coach for the 49ers we actually i interviewed her for episode 98 of burn it all down i think we're gonna re-release just that interview this week so hopefully people can listen to that because it was one of my favorite interviews i've done so she is one of the offensive assistants for the 49ers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she will be not only the first female coaching in the Super Bowl, but the first out coach. She's openly, openly a lesbian and is very public about her personal life and very proud of her personal life as well. You just did a piece on her for The Guardian. What mm-hmm. did you learn about
6: Katie? Well, the funny thing is I didn't learn that much because I've been reporting on her for like three years now. Yeah, um, so I used a lot of that for the piece, but it was more the kind of the reaction to the piece and, and just kind of how widespread the support is for her and just how sort of empowering her authenticity is to people. And that's, you know, sort of what the key is here. It's great that she's you know breaking glass and and coaching and then it but you know it's just modeling for people who you know giving a voice to people who don't feel like they can be authentic in in their own lives or or there's no pipeline for them to this kind of job that's what she represents, but you know I would say that. I think her story, I mean, you've interviewed her before, you you know this, but I think the happenstance part of her story, again, it's kind of being in the right place at the right time. And the, the one detail in the story that she was supposed to coach sixth grade basketball in Kansas City and wound up, there was administrative error, so she wound up coaching the fifth grade instead she agreed to do it and then one of the girls this is girls basketball on her roster was the daughter of Scott Pioli who had been the Chiefs GM and then went on to be the assistant GM with the Falcons because he was a parent of a kid she was coaching he got to know her got to know she played professional football of course you know her paying to play that and got to know her football mind and then gave her a shot like i think yeah. that part of it is so cool and so not relatable to people but it you know that transcends football that transcends everything you know you never know when the right opportunity is going to happen if you're smart you just meet the right person
5: yeah and i look i i understand everyone who gets mad that anytime people make a big deal out of first like wishing it wasn't a big deal i do get that yeah. but like uh, i also can't when i see her on the sidelines in these big games <laughs> I'm visibly moved. Like I get chills up and down my spine. Like it is powerful what she's doing. It just is. And I hope that it does become commonplace very, very soon. And we're getting there. But we gotta celebrate these steps along the way. All right, Melissa. Who's your
6: pick? Hmm. I'm gonna go with San Francisco. They're a slight underdog. Ooh, yes. I think the def- I think the layers of the defense, because the defense is is finally healthy in the last couple of weeks and, and they've just been such a dominating factor, I think they'll be able to sort of mitigate what Patrick Mahomes can do enough. But it's gonna be a really close, exciting game. All right. I know you're in the Bay Area, right? Are you San Francisco? Yeah. And that might sound homerish and maybe it is a little bit, but that's what
5: (laughs) I'm calling you out. No, no. I like the pick and how can people follow you? What's the best way to follow you and all of your work?
6: Yeah, the football girl on Twitter. I'm I'm active there, probably a little too active sometimes uh, I for my understand own sanity. But yeah, the football girl there. And then I think it's with TFG on Instagram. And then we have we have a pretty robust I would say it's like ninety seven percent female audience on Facebook. So it's the football girl on oh, Facebook. Oh well. yeah. That's awesome. And you also have a podcast, correct? Oh, I do have a podcast. Thank you for reminding me. (laughs) Uh, It is called the Football Girl Podcast. And we talk to figures like Katie Sowers, like you had her as well. You know, women that are doing fascinating things and just smart women having interesting conversations, all that kind of, you know, typically fall under the NFL's umbrella.
5: Yeah, I guarantee if you like Burn It All Down and you like football, you will like the Football Girl podcast. I feel very confident with that recommendation. Melissa, thank you so much for being here with us today.
6: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: All right, folks, it's time for everyone's favorite time of the show. Are you ready? You have your matches ready. It's time to burn some things. Shereen, what you got?
2: I am so mad about this. I mean, there's lots of things for us to get angry about, but this really upset me. So basically, we're going to talk about Russia. I'm not going to talk about doping. I'm going to talk about in the North Caucasus, which is the Muslim majority, we're basically talking about in Russia. So this is in the Internal Republic of Dagestan. So Makhachkala is the capital of Dagestan. So they have a swimming pool and they have a certain time that they allot specifically for women to go swim because women want that space and that privacy and that's fine and obviously may not have, you know, access to like expensive modest swimwear suits and just want to swim on their own, whatever. And women should have that right in that space. So this biggest swimming pool and one of the only ones that provides this time for women, they... Have posted a sign and changed the policy basically, and they did it through Instagram, the complex. They said from January 20th onwards, attendance of the pool is open only to men. So this has made people mad because to deny women that space, and they were only allowed on Friday anyway, and the establishment is saying that it's only financially motivated. But the problem is that, you know, if you take that opportunity away from them, a, it can increase the attendance of women. And secondly, you can easily shave off the rest of the, I don't know, seven days a week that you have men's programs there. And I mean, I think there's not enough data to necessarily support in that region. But the reality is, like, you know, having men and women on separate days of the week is fine and giving women their own space is totally fine. But completely banning them is just unhelpful to like and actually technically and this was a point made in this Al Jazeera article that I read was goes against the Russian constitution and so there's a woman named Fatima Abdullah Khalimova, and she's a former swimmer and she used to like voluntarily teach women how to swim and she can't do that and she said I do think it's to do with religion I believe it's there's a lot of religious guys come here that's what she said and that triggered me being angry because when you're in a space where you have like a Muslim majority of men taking away activities for women and that makes me mad this isn't a mixed gender thing this is just women on their own to even take away from them is it makes me really really angry there's no purpose of it there's no merit to it theologically speaking it makes me really mad I want to burn that down
1: Burn. burn I'll go next. We touched upon this a little, or you guys did in in the last episode, but I want to talk about another transphobic bill that is coming out this time in Arizona. Mm. It's titled the Save Women's Sports Act, introduced by Uh. Republican Nancy Bardo Uh. from Phoenix, Part of the bill says female student-athletes should not be forced to compete in a sport against biological males who possess inherent physiological advantages. When this is allowed, it discourages female participation in athletics, and worse, it can result in women and girls being denied crucial education and financial opportunity. I won't read you the rest because it's more bullshit. Twenty-two Republicans in the House of Representatives in Arizona have already signed on as co-sponsors of the bill. This is disgusting. And it's much like the bathroom bills that we've seen. A lot of it is, you know, not even just, first of all, we all know that it's just transphobic bullshit, but a lot of times these bills are introduced, not because I think Arizona has had a handful of trans athletes use the current system to be able to compete, but It is something that riles up people. It uses these athletes as fodder for a machine of hate and riles up people in a way that is so disingenuous. It's based on falsehoods, and it's just harmful, so harmful and disgusting to see. And what really annoyed me about this bill, on top of all of the usual disgustingness of these bills is that they had the audacity to title it Save Women's Sports Act. Ugh. If you want to save women's sports, you should stop policing their fucking bodies. If you want to save women's sports, mm-hmm. I don't know, pass a bill about equitable resources, allocations to women's mm-hmm. sports, about media for women's sports, about sponsorships for women's sports, about women in coaching positions in women's sports, in umpire and referee positions. If you want to save women's sports, there's so many steps to actually mm-hmm. like do that so spare Mm -hmm. me your false indignation about the purported states of women's sports based on a transphobic falsehood that you use women as shields to trumpet your own hateful agenda it's dumb and the audacity to say that you're doing it for the future of women's sports is not only completely false it's just downright fucking offensive and i want to burn it down okay Okay. brenda what you got
4: Today I have a double burn because Lynn's can't be with us. But my burns are linked and quick, and they're about the fact that unequal treatment of women's sports is intimately and always tied to corruption. And the more corrupt the Federation, the worse it is for women. That means not just global football, but every sport that graft, that treating women like crap, treating women athletes like that is absolutely tied to the ways in which corruption and graft work through sport. So first one, real quick. Fancy rugby union club called the Old Collegians, like as if they were hiding it, (laughs) exists (laughs) in a suburb of Adelaide in Australia. They won a $500,000 government grant to build women's locker rooms. Yay, right? Except actually they don't have a women's team because their entire women's team, all 20 athletes, quit two years ago in protest of sexual harassment. Oh, oh my gosh. God. <laughs> it could be soccer. Like it could be the football, it's <laughs> rugby. It's like amazing. And of course they couldn't be reached for comments by any of the major outlets, but look for this story to continue to develop. It is for me just shocking. And it just shows how They're just like, fuck you, women's sports. Like, not only are we going to ruin you and drive you into the ground and sexually harass you, but then we're going to try to make money off of you still somehow. Mm. So, okay, first burn. Second, really quick, has to do with the fact that we are just a couple days away. We're recording on Sunday. On January 28th is the very first women's Olympic qualifying in soccer. It is USA versus Haiti. And CONCACAF doesn't know how it's going to be broadcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the returning The US oh, women's team. World Championship <laughs> team. Jess what what Jess have to ask?
3: <laughs> the US women's team. <laughs> the US women's team? They don't know they okay. Right. Keep yeah. Going.
4: Yeah. No no broadcast <laughs> rights. According to Grant Wall and Meg Linehan and some others who are inside the scoop, Fox owns the rights, but it's not clear. And just today, again, just two days before CONCACAF came out with a tweet, quote saying, this is the quote of the tweet, the entire tweet, USA TV emoji, details coming soon.
3: (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so ludicrous. and,
4: And of course, like people are like, well, that goes for the men's too. Okay. But the men's tournament starts in March. So basically, you're going to get. No, and no one cares. Uh, right. Yeah, well, okay. But even if you do, because I'm, I actually have a soft spot for US <laughs> men's national team. All a, right, a secret fine. one. The idea is you're going to work the shit out so that it'll be fine in March for a much less interesting team that are men. Wow. And so, just one last thing there's a great soccer comedy show called The Cooligans, and they have a phrase called You've been CONCACAFED. <laughs> and so so this is perfect for me I'm going around saying it all the time though no one knows what the hell it means I'm like oh you've been concacapped capped people are looking at me and I'm like it's an inside joke with me and myself but I would like I would like to <laughs> Why well, I don't get invited to parties I would like to burn the fact that there is just massive corruption from TV rights to government grants that just mm-hmm. underdevelop women's sports so burn 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 burn
1: Burn. all right jess bring us home
3: all right so i have a mini burn pile right off the bat today in episodes 107 and 116 i burned the deaths of horses at racetracks in the u.s and specifically talked about santa anita all of my feelings about horse racing are the same today so i'm not going to repeat it but the new york times has yet another report of horse deaths at santa anita in 2020 already five horses have died there And it's only January 26th, so I'm just burning that again. But my big burn is the New Orleans Saints NFL team. Not the people on the field, but rather those who run the business side of things. I'm still in shock of this report from the Associated Press that ran on Friday of last week. I think the easiest thing here is I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs of the AP piece because I think it'll be immediately obvious what I'm upset about. So, quote, The New Orleans Saints are going to court to keep the public from seeing hundreds of emails, hundreds of emails that allegedly show team executives doing public relations damage control for the area's Roman Catholic archdiocese to help it contain the fallout from a burgeoning sexual abuse crisis. Attorneys for about two dozen men suing the church say in court filings that the 276 documents they obtained through discovery show that the NFL team, whose owner is devoutly Catholic, aided the Archdiocese of New Orleans in its, quote, pattern and practice of concealing its crimes. Okay, so the men who are suing the church say that the team, including the senior vice president of communications, Greg Bensel, let's name all these people, that they use their team emails. So these are like, I don't know, at saints.com, like I don't know what the saints thing is, but use their team email to advise the church to help lessen the blow of releasing its 2018 list of more than 50 clergy members credibly accused of sexual abuse. The saints have responded saying that the archdiocese asked for our help, we gave it to them. They were just releasing a list and to be more transparent, this was all very transparent, helping an act of disclosure and that the team had quote merely requested the court to apply the normal rules of civil discovery. So they're saying this is normal to keep everything hidden. The AP points out though that in a court filing the team argued that the emails were always supposed to be private and shouldn't be quote fodder for the public. It turns out that so the owner of the team Gail Benson, she's very good friends with the New Orleans archbishop Gregory Amond. Benson gives millions to Catholic institutions in the area and the archbishop is often her guest at NFL games. Credit to the AP, they're supporting the men and the release of the documents the news organization filed a motion with the court in which it argued quote This case does not involve intensely private individuals who are dragged into the spotlight, but well-known mega institutions that collect millions of dollars from local residents to support their activities. It's all very curious, isn't it? If indeed the Saints were on the right side here, just helping out, it's a wonder they are fighting so hard to keep everything so private. It's not as if anyone is claiming the organization did a crime. But the Saints are on the defensive, willing to fight sexual abuse survivors rather than simply hand over the documents. In choosing between the two PR options, so the one, the fallout from fighting the release, which is what they've done, and the actual release, they chose sort of the former. Truly, what the fuck are in those emails? What are in those emails? So I guess today what I want to burn are institutions with too much money and too much cultural capital that use both to escape accountability. Burn. Burn.
1: Well, after all that burning, it's time to honor some badass women of the week. We have a lot of podcast alums on this week's honorable mentions. So first, cheers to former Burn It All Down guest, Katie Sowers. The offensive assistant coach for the 49ers will make history as the first woman and openly gay person to coach in the Super Bowl. You want to revisit that conversation, check out episode 98 Also, shout out to another former guest of the show, soccer superstar, recent retiree, Annie Aluko. She was appointed the first ever sporting director for women's football at Aston Villa Football Club. Congrats to the University of Central Florida's cheerleading team, the 2020 UCA National Championships. And this is not the last you'll hear about cheerleading in the future on <laughs> Bernadal <laughs> Also, shout out to Suprema Inescu, the University of Oregon basketball whiz kid, who's always breaking record these days. Here's another one. She surpassed Gary Payton and now has the most assists in Pac-12 history, men's or women's. As Shireen already told you, I guess shout out for Team Canada, who won Woo! the Elite Women's Three on Three at NHL All Star. Woohoo, mate, or whatever you say there. <laughs> and I, 14 I year- see you, Amira Rose dear. 14 <laughs> year old Alyssa Liu, who won her second consecutive U.S. Women's Figure Skating Championship. That makes her the youngest two time women's skating champion. Impressive. Congrats, Alyssa. Mexican archer. Paula Palejo, who was dropped from the Rio 2016 Mexican Olympic team when the National Sports Commission mistakenly accused her of doping. Her name has been officially cleared in the court system, but she will continue competing for Uzbekistan because of what she says is rampant corruption and neglect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Congrats to Pakistan's national football team captain. Haraja Khan for winning Hum TV's Most Stylish Sports Personality in 2018 and 2019 at the recent Style Awards on Saturday night congrats to another former guest of the pod, Shakayla Hill, who is a Grambling alum. You might remember she recorded not one, but two quadruple doubles. Well, oh, she just recorded yeah. her first professional one with her Serbian team. If you remember, she was not drafted what? by the WNBA. The WNBA currently has no players from HBCUs on their rosters, so she plays in Serbia, but she's killing it over there. She just recorded a game of 15 points, 11 steals, 11 assists, and 10 rebounds, giving her her first professional quadruple double her third overall and what is this even it's amazing shout to you and now a drum roll please all of us here at burn it all down are in awe and inspired by maya moore The WNBA champion is sitting out another year from the sport, including Team USA's Olympic run, in order to focus again on criminal justice reform, in particular, helping to free Jonathan Irons, who she believes is wrongly convicted and incarcerated. Maya, you're using your platform, you're living out your ideals, and you're on a very important mission to bring awareness to criminal justice system and and to reform it. You are working diligently on the Irons case. And while we will certainly miss you on the court, to do this in the height of your career at your prime is nothing short of magnificent. And you are our badass woman of the week. All right, y'all. What's good in your world? Jessica, what's up?
3: Well, tennis, obviously, as you all heard. I love the Grand Slams. I have read... Two great romance novels recently, and I always show up every once in a while. So if you love them like I do, I highly recommend Talia Hibbert's Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and Kate Claiborne's Love Lettering. I can't tell you which one I loved more. They're different, but they're both beautiful and so well done. And then I'm going to just take this ball and throw it over the net or hit it over the net to Amira. I've been watching (laughs) Cheer on Netflix in part because Amira told me to. Uh, I finished it last night. It's amazing. Go watch it. We will be talking about this at some point soon because there is like 1 million things to say about this remarkable show.
1: Yeah, I'll go next because is also my Oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts. I need the rest of you to finish it, please, so we can chat. But it has brought such joy because of all the thoughts, all the conversations. It's not necessarily – always joyful to watch but it's something that I am so ready to talk about and that is me and Michael watched it together when I was sick and it was just we did it in a day we were captivated by these young people so that's that's my largely know what's good also it's you know our favorite week of the year we have two Bayad baby birthdays coming up and so samari will be 12 this week wow. i've been parenting for 12 yeah. years like i oh literally just lost the like it hit me in my chest just now when i said that that's mm-hmm. wild wild facts right there but we're going to Broadway, of course, to see Dear Evan Hansen, oh, Jordan Fisher. Jordan Fisher, yeah. Yeah. It's his first weekend playing the first <gasps> Black Evan. So we will be there because we stand him so much. And also, even though that show is really depressing and I'm not like super excited about that, I like happy shows like Mean Girls the musical. But we'll <laughs> go to see this. But I do love my trips to New York with Bug and we do an escape room or like last time we did the virtual reality Jumanji thing, which is terrifying. But those are the moments where like we really, that's how we like remain very connected in this like hormonal teenager phase of her life. Michael's version is doing TikToks with her. Mm -hmm. They are so embarrassing. (laughs) So good. (laughs) I love them. So embarrassing. (laughs) But you know, I think when you're parenting tweens and teens, you, you figure out, the moments that make them not hate you and you hold on to those for Mm -hmm. dear life. So I'm looking forward for (laughs) Mm -hmm. a really good weekend with my, you know, almost teenager, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Shereen.
2: Just to bounce off that, I haven't watched here because I'm still getting the prescription to watch Sex Education from Dr. Davis, which I'm doing now. <laughs> so this is not a show I can watch with my kids, so I watch it secretly. And it's really fascinating to me and hilarious. I'm really enjoying it. I've been doing a lot of volleyball momming for my 15-year-old Salah Adin. We've been to Chicago. We you know, just came back from Kingston, Ontario. My birthday was last week, and I loved it. I had a really great time. My kids were wonderful with me. And now this week, as Amira said, there's two Bayad baby birthdays. So Samari and Jahad, my daughter, both have a born on the same day. So Aww. Amira and I share a birthday. day. Jahad will be 18, and I can't even talk about it because I'm going to start to cry. She's leaving for university in September, and I can't talk about it. So there's, there's all this wonderful stuff. When I was in Kingston at a volleyball tournament for my son at Queen's University, literally next door, Dr. Courtney Sito and the KIN department was having a conference in sports sociology, and Dr. KY Kim who does environmental sustainability and mega events, namely Olympics, was presenting as a keynote. So i had never met her before. So it was absolutely amazing. And Dr. Young Lee gave me a shirt that said, it's an honor just to be Asian, which is what I wear. And so I hung out with them and it was, it was, it was just literally so awesome to be able to do the volleyball mom, then jump over. And there was, it was a moment of me, like that was kind of cathartic to say, you know what, I can do this. There's places in the universe that we can balance our jobs and our families and everything else we want to do. And that group of women, even though I'm not an academic, are including also Dr. Chauvin and Xavier. They're like my family. And they are like a sisterhood of BIPOC women who support each other and are chosen family and community. And to have, for me to have that, like I have family in various places, is just, it was so powerful. And so, you know, out there, I just want to wish everybody, whether you're celebrating joy or struggling with something, there's pockets of community and chosen family for you. So hold that tight. And I'm just sending everybody lots of love.
4: Well, end of January, it's, I'm always scraping the barrel in terms of Mm. what's good, because it's the end of my break, which was super productive. And I'm really grateful for the time. But it's also like the moment where I'm like, all right, whatever I didn't get done is now not getting done till June. So Mm. there's that there's that kind of like, you know, third grade feeling like the first day back to school, but it ends up being exciting. But one really cool thing is that wait, I'm sorry,
1: are you just starting your semester? We always do. Oh, my God. I am so indignant about this. Why? I go until the I'm not middle even of May. In. So does ours, I feel. No, no, no that's no. not true. You guys, okay, but anyways, no. it's our third week here. I'm not even teaching. This is just like I'm indignant on behalf of my you colleagues who be because, because
4: in mid-May, you've been done for three weeks. So it's exactly the same <laughs> number of weeks in the semester, really. But So, yeah, we're back because we always do MLK Junior Day and so we don't go until after that.
3: That's how UT is, too. Yeah.
4: So anyway, notwithstanding Amir's resentment, though she's not even <laughs> teaching. <laughs> and I'm teaching four, by the way. Oh, one my God, I'm teaching, Brenda. Yeah. But one of the reasons I'm teaching an extra class is that at Hofstra Latin American and Caribbean Studies, we are taking a group to Cuba. And it's just been solidified that we have the right amount of students. So I'm going to Havana with 13 students in March now, and that is for sure. And I have never been to Cuba. And for a Latin Americanist, you know, of any ilk, I think it's super exciting. So even though it's January and I'm looking out my window and there's still five inches of snow that have been there for like ever, I'm thinking dreaming in
1: Cuban. So that's good. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thanks for listening. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, subscribe, share. The ratings help us reach new listeners. And also, we just love to hear your feedback. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod or on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Of course, check out our website. There you'll get information about our show show links, transcripts for each episode. You also can email us directly from the site. We always love to hear from you. Send us your listeners mail, especially if you're our Patreons. Super shout outs to y'all. Reminder that you can submit listener mail that we answer in our monthly vlogs. We love, love, love to hear from you flamethrowers. Use the website also to connect to our Patreon. Sign up if you're not a Patreon. It can start at as low as $2 a month for extra content, longer interviews, behind-the-scenes vlogs, a whole gamut of things. Also, there's a link right there to our Teespring Merchandise Shop. As the weather's changing, if you want a long-sleeve shirt, you want a button or a decal for your laptop, we have all your merchandise needs over there. Again, from me, Amira Rose Davis. Brenda Elsie, Jessica Luther, Shireen Ahmed. As Brenda says, burn on, not out, and we'll see you next week, flamethrowers. <laughs> <laughs> that was really aggressive. I mean that, that so very lovingly. <laughs> we'll see you next week, flamethrowers. <laughs> Smiley face emoji. <laughs>